The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Emerging photographers are often told to specialize in something, some genre of photography. Saying that you are a generalist, that you can shoot anything and everything, leaves people at a loss as to what to hire you for. So eventually, professional photographers find a niche by which they not only are identified by, but are often hired for. But finding success in a particular area of photography doesn't mean you can't find other avenues to express your creativity with a camera. Levon Bess is a commercial and editorial photographer who has gained a reputation as a great portrait and sports photographer. So it might be surprising to many that such a photographer has created an amazing body of work, not photographing athletes or celebrities, but insects. His project called Micro Sculpture is a personal project where he photographs insects under a microscope. But before you think been there, done that, you have to see the work to see how unique and remarkable it really is. The level of detail and sharpness is nothing like you would get with a DSLR and a macro lens. This is light years beyond that. The photographs and the means by which he created these detailed rich images is fascinating and I know you'll be amazed when you finally set your eyes on them. But for me, it's especially exciting to see a photographer who demonstrates how one keeps photography exciting and challenging for themselves. Well, Yvonne, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. I'm so impressed by the breadth of your work. It really is fascinating. You're known as a commercial photographer. You you, you do portraiture. You do sports. Um, but you came to my attention because of this macro photography that you've been doing of insects. And how do you go from doing primarily portrait and sports photography into <laughs> working with things on a microscopic level? It's, it's a bit of a jump. I'll give you that. It's, um, <laughs> a lot of people find it hard to understand why, you know, you know, uh, you can go from one genre to another. But, you know, the thing is, I think, as a commercial photographer, you have your pigeonhole. And I understand the reasons for that. You know, um, a client, where, whether it's at a magazine or an advertising agency, they want to know what they're going to get for their money at the end of the day. So I've been shooting sport and portraits for the best part of 20 years now. And, you know, that is my brand. That's what I'm known for commercially. And, and that's what people buy into. Which is fine, I, uh, which is, I've got no problem with that at all. The reality is I can shoot pretty much anything, I think. You know, I've got no problem with whether I'm shooting cars or whether I'm shooting landscapes. You know, I think it, it's uh, the commercial world that wants to categorize you in certain genres of photography. Mm -hmm. 
But as a photographer, I think you need to have some breathing space. You know, I do a lot of personal work in a whole heap of different genres of photography, but it's personal work. You know, I don't put it out there because I don't want to confuse my clients at, at the end of the day. With the macro work and the microsculpture exhibition, you know, essentially that was just a personal project that I released out there. And it was a small project that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And now, in reality, it's overlapping into my commercial world. And so it's certainly taken up, you know, as much time as my commercial work does. So, you know, it's, it started off really as a project where I, a few years back, I started to become a little bit disillusioned with photography to a certain extent in the fact that I think we, it's become so disposable these days. We take so many pictures. We take millions of pictures, but we don't look at them. You know, it's, it's this instant reaction to pick up a phone and, and take a picture of something mm-hmm. to document it. Yeah, we document it, we put it in our back pocket, but we don't, we don't look at it again. You know, we don't print these things up. And so what I wanted to do was to start a project where the pictures, for me, had a certain amount of worth. You know, they had a real weight behind them. And so, you know, these, uh, these portraits of the insects that I do, you know, they take up to sort of three to four weeks each to produce. And there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears that go into these things. And for me, at the end of it, that image that is produced has a worth, it's a value. And hopefully these images will stand around for a long time. And, and I think people, the people who have seen the project and more importantly understand the process of how these images are created, understand that you know, they have a value and, and a worth and they, they're not disposable in any way, shape or form. And that, you know, that's, that's, that's what brought me around to doing this project in the first place. But it's interesting that the, the, you know, the sort of the genesis of the project was involved with, involved the fact that you were working with a limited space and you wanted to be, I guess, relatively close to to home when you were doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, essentially, you know, I wanted to have a project that I could jump back into when I came back from a commercial job, you know, something that is there always waiting for me something that didn't take up masses of room in my studio so I can still work, you know, on other projects in there. And, and that's, you know, one of the first reasons it came around. That's what, that sparked my interest in macro because, and not just that, it's also, it was teaching myself something new. I find as I get older now, I, I, I tend to learn less, you know. <laughs> I wanted to find a, a genre of photography that challenged my brain a bit more, you know, and that something that I had to work out problems and, you know, had to find solutions to, to issues that I'd never come across in standard photography, you know. And again, I wanted to exercise my brain. And, and that was another reason why I got into it, really. And also, you know, I wanted to produce images that I hadn't seen before. Mm. These days, sorry if this sounds all pe- too pe- pessimistic. No, no, no. no. But, but these, these, these days I, I find I, I struggle to see images that are new. You know, I think that's, that's one problem where, the same images is, seems to crop up again and again and again in, in different formats, essentially. The same images reshot by different people again and again. And I think I wanted to, to find a set of imagery that, that hadn't been done before. You know, the genre of macro photography has been done before. Has it been done on this scale and this style? You know, I haven't, I haven't found anybody yet. Who's, who's done it so and um, you know that's another reason why the, the project came about so how did how did it, it evolve to the point that you recognized that you were doing something different did you have a sort of a concept even before you made the first photograph in terms of how you wanted to differentiate what you were going to do compared to you know the hundreds if not thousands of other photographers who've 
photographed similar subject matter um, using microscopes or using you know various tools to increase the magnification. What was what was your vision going in that allowed you to do what you just said, create images that had not been made before? Well, you know, I wanted to sort of try and test out to the concept of whether I can take my commercial photographic lighting skills into or use those on a subject that is six millimeters long. You know, is it possible? Can can you sculpt light around a subject that is six millimeters long? Oh, okay. You know, if you th think of the size, you know, what you're talking about is is something that is half the size of your fingernail. You know, I, I'm creating images that are sort of five gigabytes that can be printed up three, four meters high. Now, my my curiosity was, well, can I have a, have, have creative control over that process of producing that image? You know, can I control the light? Can I sculpt the light around something so small? In reality, if you if you put any sort of light source on a subject that size, it's the equivalent of me photographing you in ambient daylight. The light source was, would be so big in comparison to the, to the insect mm -hmm. that it's very hard to control. So that then led me down the path of photographing the insect in separate sections and then just treating every single section like a small still life. So, for example, I photograph just an antennae, and then I'd light that antennae to make that one section look as beautiful as it can. And then I'd move on to an eye. But obviously, the eye has a, has a different shape, has different texture, and therefore it has to be lit in a different way. So, you know, it's just treating every different element, every different part of this six-millimeter insect as small individual still lives. Yeah. And that's how it's produced. But, but it was just a curiosity to see if, you know, how far you could go with this. How, how much control can you have over photographing an insect or a subject of that size? You know, when you photograph a human subject, you're, you're usually dealing with multiple light sources, reflectors, uh, you know, flats to block light, you know, in order to be able to, to shape it. Yeah. How are you doing that when you're dealing with things on the microscopic level? I mean, you, you, you just mentioned that you just decide to isolate elements of the insect, but still you're trying to sort of shape the light. How do you do that to that degree? Well, just in the same way as you, I was to photo, if I was to photograph you, it's, this, the principles are the same. You're just reducing it down, essentially. You know, ra rather than having a eight foot by eight foot reflector, if I was photographing you, my reflectors are you know twenty centimeters long or twenty millimeters long. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's just bringing it all down and and don't think about the whole insect. Just think about that one section that you're photographing. You know, so. And then, you know, just, just think about the eye, for example. Forget how the light falls on the rest of the insect. It's irrelevant because you're only focused on the eye. Right. And then once you get to the, the post-production post stage, you're just using that one element. And that's, that's what helps make the images pop a little bit more and, uh, and brings out a lot more detail than you'd be able to do if you were just you know, using one single light source. And... When you produce one one of these images, it it consists of anywhere between eight to ten thousand individual yeah. images. Yeah. yeah. No wonder it takes you two weeks to to, <laughs> to, to put those yeah. together. What was what was yeah. the challenge in terms of learning how to not only light in this way, but to start thinking systematically in terms of each individual frame and all the adjustments that you had to make. Uh, because one of the reasons you had to do this was because you're working with such a limited depth of field 
that not yeah. one singular image would give you the the amount of focus and sharpness that you would need. Yeah. Once, well, I mean, once you get past, uh, once you start using microscope lenses that have a, a ten times magnification, your depth of field is so shallow that if you when you look through the viewfinder, you can't really see anything. You know, there's there's hardly any focus at all. So what I do is, you know, I, I set the the camera up on a on a rail that moves the f- moves automa- automatically moves the camera forward ten microns in between each shot. So I'll set my focal point, start focal point, and my end focal point, and I let it run through. Now, depending on the depth of the insect, that could be eight hundred shots there. You know, so now. That's 800 shots for that one section. Now, obviously, I'm then splitting the insect up into 30 different sections. So you have to do that 30 times over the whole insect. Yeah. And that's where you come up with your sort of eight to 10,000 images overall. And obviously, each one of those sections is lit differently. But then you also then have to, uh, to think about as your camera lens moves across the insect, you know, you'll get perspective shifts also that, that size as well. Mm-hmm. So you have to incorporate that into your workflow to adjust for that as you move along, move along the insect. There's a few. It's it's a very systematic process, and it's a very relaxing process actually, where you can't rush it. It's 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 the the polar opposite to my commercial world. Was there anything surprising that you hadn't anticipated, like maybe technical issues with respect to the you know, the lens optics that you were using, or uh, anything like that that you hadn't anticipated initially that you had to sort of figure out in order to be able to achieve the the images that you created. Yeah, um, I mean, there are a few things. For example, it, it's more, it was more certain insects gave you problems. And the, the, the iridescence of certain insects, for example, like there are some uh, beetles can be quite a challenge where the, you know, the way beetles create their color is through the refraction of light. They don't have any pigment in them. So if I was to hit a beetle with a light source from the side... And then another one from the top, the colors that you would see would be completely different because the way the light is entering the insect's exoskeleton or you know, microsculpture, you know, it changes the color basically. So you'll see on certain images, like there's a one from the project, which is an orchid cuckoo bee. You know, you'll see the nose end of that is, is quite blue where the rest of it is green. Now, if you were to look, that, look at that in, in, with one light source in natural light, the, the whole thing would look green, but it's the way that it's being lit from different angles and different light sources at the same time that gives us different color. So, you know, there are things like that that throw you challenges. And also, you know, for example, when you get down to this sort of magnification, you know, you get into the limits of photo stacking software. Right. And, you know, very hairy insects, for example, can be quite a challenge because, you know, you talk about, you know, tens of thousands of hairs overlapping each other. And you're asking a, a computer to try and work out which hair is in front of each other as it compresses that file. So um, it's not so much the, the photographic <laughs> difficulties, it's more the, the different insects and their textures and, and their makeup that makes it um, a varied technical problem. Well, the, 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 the reference to the photo stacking is, was one of, one of the things I was curious about. I mean, you have eight to 10,000 images, uh, how much were you dependent on automation and how much of it was in you having to go in there manually and, you know, yeah. put these images I mean, together? I, yeah, I started off doing it pretty manually. Uh, and quite quickly I realized it's, it's not going to work. <laughs> you know? 
and so you know I, I trawled the in, internet for some you know freeware and you know certain codes where I've now I can now automate much of the process um, where uh, you know for example, I could give you an example the way I work in my studio at the moment is that uh, I have three machines running I'll have um, I'll be shooting one insect and that process itself is cert- is automated to a certain extent where I, once I set it running, it will run taking pictures for half an hour or so. Then on a second machine, I've got the insect that I photographed the previous week. That will be in the process of stacking. So all, the, all that information, all, the, all those files will be starting to be compressed into fully focused images. And then on a third machine, I'm retouching all those final compressed images together. So at any one time in my studio, I've got a workflow of three insects being produced in various states of completion. Wow. And occasionally, I photograph a sports person in between. <laughs> <laughs> well, your initial subjects were were chosen by your son, who went into your backyard, yeah, uh, yeah. To, to pick your subject matter. But eventually, uh, you were able to collaborate uh, with the Oxford University Museum of Natural History. Yeah, and that's right. T- tell me about how that happened. Well, it's like you say, is the you know I started is the whole thing came about initially when my boy brought in a, a green ground beetle from the garden and we were looking at it under his microscope. He's got just like a kid's microscope. You know, and, uh, and that's what turned me on to the insects. And then from there I started, you know, working with found specimens that he'd found in the garden. But then after I had about four or five images completed, I needed to sort of broaden the spectrum of specimens. And so I contacted the museum to see if I could have access to some of their collection. And I went down there for a meeting and I showed um, a, one of the entomologists down there the images I've been producing on the laptop. And so he saw the the full image and then I started zooming in and zooming in a bit further. And I kept on going. So he, he saw full mag- the full magnification of a five gigabyte file. And, you know, his his jaw hit the floor. And and I think from that point, I, th- I realized, it, you know, I was onto a good thing sort of thing. And it was it was we'd never looked back and they, they immediately there and then gave me full access to their collection. And we, uh, you know, a few weeks later, the, the idea of actually exhibiting these images there in the museum was born. And, and that was two years ago. And, and the, the exhibition is up there now. And how big are the prints? I mean, it's amazing. You take a very small subject and you blow them, blow them up into prints that are huge. How, how large are, are these things? Um, they're three meters. They're three meters by two meters, um, the big ones. And, you know, we could go a lot. That, that's, I've had to throw away half the file size to, to, to produce those. Oh, wow. If, if there's, if there's a, somebody with a printer out there that's bigger than that, you know, <laughs> please get in touch. Because, so, you know, the files are being produced are sort of around, a, on average, about four and a half to five gigabytes. But, you know, the printers can't handle that sort of file. So we have to, we have to downgrade the files a little bit to print that big. But... It's nice. It's nice seeing these images up big. They need to be up big. And at the exhibition, we've got the actual insects themselves next to the prints mm. or just in front of them. So you can look at the, the real life seven millimeter long oh, um, wow, insect. And then you look up and you can see it's three meter picture. Um, and it's, it's nice watching the kids have that experience. That's awesome. I want to go back to your beginnings. Um, you studied photography both in, in England and, and in Spain. Um, but you've talked about how after after you finished finished your studies that you really struggled to try to make a career as a photographer. Um, yeah. And and you had a mentor, uh, Lee uh, Ferrant. 
Yeah, Lee Farrant, yeah. Lee Farrant. And I, I, I want to talk about him a little because I think mentorship is is something that it happens for a lot of photographers mm. uh, where they have yeah. someone who really kind of takes them under their wing and really makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, but can you talk about your relationship with him and, and why your relationship with him was so important for your development as a, as a photographer? He gave me my, my break in the fact that um, he, why he did that, I'm not sure, but he, he saw something in my portfolio that I presented to him that there was a certain amount of creativity there, I think. There was the enthusiasm, the enthusiasm of youth. Mm. And he, he just threw me in at the deep end. You know, there was no question of can you do this it was more of a case of i'm paying you to be a photographer um, a junior photographer but i'm paying you to be a photographer now you crack on with it and it's it was an opportunity that i seized with with two hands and and you know there's there's a, a huge amount of trust from him to do that you know at the end of the day he had a commercial business you know potentially fi a financial penalty penalty for him if i got it wrong but you learn quickly, you know, it was a sink or swim situation. And, you know, fortunately, I made it through the other side. But, but on the, also, you have to realize, I think, when you're getting a lucky break like that, you have to realize when you've got an opportunity in front of you. So where, the way I used to work then, I used to, I used to get into the studio at six o'clock in the morning. And I used to work on my own projects from six until nine and then I used to do my day shift, so from, from 9 until 6 or half mm. 6 during the day. And then I used to stay until 10 o'clock at night, carrying on my own projects. So I used to do sort of six hours of my own work and then, you know, the eight hours or whatever it was in between. And I, and I did that for the first two years, you know, five or six days a week for two years until I had a, you know, a comprehensive portfolio that had my style on it. Um, and so by the time I was sort of 23, 24 I was shooting international sort of ad campaigns for a company called Umbro, who, who do lots of sportswear. And, and that was it. So I never really assisted anyone. The only person I really assisted was a guy called Brent Sturton, who was also, you know, quite, quite equally a mentor as much as Lee was. Brent was a, is a reportage photographer. Um, and he was based in New York and he came over to London and he knew Lee from uh, some jobs they had done in, in the past. And so Lee took him on at the agency as well. And, and Brent was, you know, four or five years older than me. But um, he was also inspirational in the fact his work ethic and his dedication to photography was extreme. And we were, I was lucky we shared a house for a while. And I could sort of see from him the way he lived, breathed photography, you know, all his waking hours. And I tried to take some of that into my own work, really. And I still sort of, you know see the work he produces now you know i think he's won the world press photo four times and you know he's get his head of assignments now um i think he's still traveling 10 months of the year yeah and he's been doing that for the best part of 15 6 17 years and, I, and that's a dedication of photography that you know i tried to take on board and so but anyway so both of those were were mentors and equal rights do you think that having the uh, proximity to those people not only the chance to see their work but and have an opportunity to sort of get to know them, see their work ethic, to see how they not only work and they live is part of what helps to drive you rather than having sort of a distant appreciation of someone or someone's work. Yeah. 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 It's, it, you know, to get to see somebody on a personal level 
that, and it doesn't have to be photography. It could be any discipline. It could be a sport. So I do a lot of athletes, obviously. And I look at them the same way, same way as I looked at Brent at the time in the fact that their dedication to their discipline is incredible, you know. Um, and that, that can only rub off on you on a, in a positive way. You have to let it and you have to embrace it and you have to, you know, push forward with energy and enthusiasm yourself. But, you, you know, if you look at other people and look up to them and see how they're doing it and also see the results that are coming from their endeavours, then that's, that's nothing but inspiring in my eyes. One of the challenges of creating and managing your website and blog has always been keeping up with all the changes with the internet and all these devices. It sometimes seems that no sooner have you completed your website, it's already outdated, leaving you yet another learning curve to play catch up with, or if you weren't doing it yourself, paying someone else to do it for you. Well, Squarespace handles all that. They are constantly updating and adding new features like its new integration with Apple News. If you have an iPhone or an iPad, you have likely checked out Apple News to catch up on the latest in news or your favorite blogs. Well, now you can make your own blog content compatible with Apple News to publish your written content, audio, video, and link it all back to your Squarespace site. This creates an amazing way for getting your content out there, and I, for one, am looking forward to using it myself. But find out what it can do for you. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. One of the uh, other personal projects that I wanted to talk to you about was the One Love Project, in which you traveled, you know, I think, over 20, 27 countries, yeah. Uh, within a relatively short period of time to document the sport of uh, international soccer or mm-hmm. international football. Yeah. <laughs> I, always got, I always get confused on how to refer yeah, to them. we can go with soccer. <laughs> but um, that was a pretty extensive project. I mean, we're going from one extreme to another, you know, and talking from macroscopic yeah. insects yeah. to this sort of world fascination with, with soccer. T- tell, me, tell us about that, that project. How did it, how did it start? Well, that was that was started with uh, Lee and myself. Where, like I say, I started shooting some of the England soccer campaigns, and you know we had a good relationship with them, and we came up with the idea of you know producing a large body of work that encapsulated soccer on a global level, on a global level. So not not just looking at professional athletes, looking at the culture of the sport. Some you know from small children in the mountains of Peru to David Beckham playing for England. You know, the whole breadth of the game. So we, we, we pitched the idea to Umbro and they didn't quite get it. And um, so I went off to South America and I shot four or five countries in South America on, and, you know, to try and give them a flavour of how we saw the project working. And I came back and showed them the pictures and, you know, then the, it, was, it was all go from there. They understood what we were talking about. They understood how their brand would fit into that project. And they sponsored the whole project in its entirety from that point forward. So I used to go away for three and a half weeks and, you know, try and do maybe three or four countries in that time. And then come back, do a quick edit, 
show Umbro, show the clients, show the paymaster that they're, they're getting their money's worth. And then that was it. And then I go away again. And so I think uh, 20 or seven, 28 countries, I think it was, in, in about 13 months. So that, and that work got produced into a book and a tour and exhibition. And the, and the exhibition tour for two years yeah. went over, I think, 17 countries in total. Well, the images are not just of professional uh, soccer soccer games or, or professional athletes. You're you're covering a wide breadth of people from you know kids in a in a local neighborhood playing with yeah. a makeshift makeshift soccer ball to you know you know thousands of people enjoying a game. T- tell me about the whole thought process in terms of you know because you're going down there, you have a limited amount of time. How much forethought goes into okay? I'm going to go down there. I have so much time to do. I need to create a diversity of different images, but you know, there's this amount of there's amount of planning that has to be involved, but there's also, you know, serendipity that can sometimes yeah. lead to really interesting images. So, how did that all work for you? I think with when you're in a in a documentary or reportage, when you have that hat on, should we say, you've got to let things happen. You know, the best photographers in that genre make sure they're in the right place at the right time. You know, and that comes through experience, and that's an understanding of your environment or the location that you're going to be in, trying to predict what events will happen at what time. And that's something as simple as being in a location at the right part of the day when you know the light is going to be right on that certain section. And I think that the rest of it, you should just let go and see what happens and react to the situation there and in front of your face. You know, you shouldn't, you really shouldn't try and force it too much. With that project, I think the hardest thing there was it got to about the four-month mark. You know, I've been on the road for four months, and, you know, I was very conscious that I was starting to create images that were very similar, but just in a different mm-hmm. place, in a different country. You know, because, you know, children playing in Buenos Aires can look very similar to the children playing in Spain, or, you know, it's just a different location. So the challenge then was to try and creatively produce different images that could sit together in a book format of 400 images and not be repetitive. Um, and that was the challenge, really, from sort of the midway point onwards. And I think, you know, there was a certain point in the project I started introducing light. So I, was, I had an assistant, so I was going into football crowds and we were just working with just like small quantum lights with slaves. And so he'd, he'd um, you know, be off at an angle so we'd be lighting the documentary work in that sort of sense just to try and give it a different different style and then towards the end you know i started looking at more about the the details and more you know the paraphernalia or the merchandise that kind of thing so you know the the tricky thing was to try and keep the the project fresh all the way through you know 13 months is is a is a long time to shoot on one subject straight so um but it, it, it works as a. I think it works as a as a project. I don't think I could do it again now. What, why is that? No, I've got a wife and kids now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think I'll be divorced pretty quickly if I said I was going away for a year. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Um, tell me about the editing process because that's a lot of work over a large, you know, long period of time. Um, sometimes yeah. it's the editing process that is uh, that kicks your ass more so than actually producing the images. Yeah. Tell me about the process of being able to have to go through all those images and kind of select which ones end up in the final in the final product. Yeah, it's a it's a process that I struggle with quite a lot. Um, to be honest with you, you know, because I think you get too personal to certain images because you were there and you remember the experience of taking that photo. 
it might not be actually be, be the best photo in the world or not in the, or the best photo in that selection but for you it was the best moment in that select moment in time if you imagine so you know i might be in a space where you know a, football, a soccer crowd was going crazy and for me in my head it was a it was an amazing experience then it leads you to being biased about that picture because the picture itself might not be as good as it, as you think it is so i used to do quite wide edits and then hand it over to some other you know some other people to have a look at and then I'd leave them for a long time. I'd leave them for two or three months and then come back to them and then edit them. I mean, at the start of the project, I was actually shooting on film. Now, for example, in South America, I shot the whole thing on film. But I quickly, quickly realized that going through endless airport X-ray machines with 200 rolls of shot film is not an, not an experience that I, I, I like. So we quickly switched over to digital, which is, which is great. But then, you know, but then you have to, it's much easier to edit on on I think on film yeah. in those days it, it sort of forced your hand to make quick edits whereas I think the digital format you shoot a lot more you've got more to edit you know I think uh, on the film film side of things there was uh, you were always conscious about every single picture costs you money and, <laughs> and, and it's a thought process as well I think with the digital thing I've got a, there's a photographer I know here in the UK. And he is the next, he was a generation before me, so he was, you know, he was fully film. And, but he still shoots digital on very small cards. So he will, he will shoot mm. on cards that will only take 24, 25 images. And he does that for a reason in the fact that he still likes that breathing space between shots. So he, treat, he still treats it like, as if he's shooting on a film. So in between shots, he'll, he'll pull the card out, have a breather, you know, contemplate on what he shot and whether he's going in the right direction and then start again. Um, I think sometimes on film, on digital, we, we, we sometimes use a bit more of a scattergun approach. Oh, yeah. yeah. All it does is just take a bunch of hard drive space. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, you're as well known for your portrait work as you are for your sports work, but I'm wondering how your ability to effectively be a, a, a great sports photographer to capture action helps you when it comes to having a singular subject sitting for a portrait? I think it helps you in the fact that you have to work quickly. Mm. You know, being able to work quickly as a photographer is probably one of the biggest assets you can get. To be able to be concise with your decisions and make those decisions quickly and assertively is a good skill to have. Because, for example, with a lot of portrait work, you get especially celebrity work, the higher up the food chain you get, the less time you get. And so you have to be able to think on your feet quickly. And, you know, that's what certainly sports work gives you in the fact that you, you need, to, need to be prepared, but you also need to be, work, be able to work in a very short space of time. Can you give me an example of a, of a recent uh, uh, session that you may have had with, with someone where exactly what you're describing came into play? A good example would be like the Tarantino session with Quentin Tarantino. You know, he was, he's very charming, lovely and childlike in his enthusiasm but you know again he's up he's up there on the food chain and so i think i had probably five six minutes seven minutes with him to shoot maybe three or four pictures and it's one of those ones at that point there when you when you're squeezed into that short space of time the worst thing you can do i think is look at your laptop and i, I never do once i start you know i won't look at my my laptop to check if the pictures are coming through all right you know i've got an assistant there to make sure they're coming through but you don't make any adjustments you just crack on with the pictures because I think as soon as you stop and pause like that, you lose your relationship with the subject very, very quickly in that short mm -hmm. space of time. And you need to keep that subject engaged, keep them moving. 
Otherwise, those momentary pauses, in my mind, break that connection between you and the subject. And uh, that loses you 30 seconds out of your five minutes. Did you ever learn that lesson the hard way? Um, not as yet. Okay. <laughs> not as yet, you know. But I think, I think that harks back to I grew up, I was probably the last generation of film. Mm. Where you you had to have confidence in the picture you were making. You know, if you were shooting on transparency, you, you had a third of a stop. You know, flexibility to get the picture right. Now these days, I've got stop stop and a half of flexibility, so I don't need to look at the laptop to make sure the picture's looking good. You know, yeah. my test shots should do that. The rest of it is understanding how your lights fall on the subject. If they move, is that affecting your light fall on the subject? You know, you should know those things. But yeah, I think. Being able to shoot in a small, a small space of time and shoot quickly is, is, is quite a useful thing to have in your bag. You mentioned earlier that you, you're married, you've got a family, and you can't make some of the choices that you made you know, maybe a while ago in terms <laughs> of just traveling. But I'm wondering how your career, how, how different your choices have become as, as a photographer who has you know, a, a good body of work to stand on. Um, so it gives you a little more flexibility, maybe in terms of some of the choices you can make. But how has having a family helped to reshape what you do as a as a photographer? I mean, there, there's a obviously apart from the travel. I think it's it's certainly mellowed me quite a lot. You know, I used to when I was younger, my thing was documentary, and so I used to you know I wanted to phone, photograph the extreme stuff. That was what you know I used to like. You no, know, again, harking back to Brent's work. You know, some of Brent's work is quite, you know, it's quite full on, and it's it's not to everyone's taste in this, his subject matter. But I, I that stimulated me. You know, that's what I found interesting. So, you know, for example, if we had demonstrations or riots in London, you know, I'd be the one at the front of the queue to to get the picture. So there's, there's things like that I wouldn't do now. There's certain um, situations that I wouldn't put myself in to get the picture. So I think my the, the work that I do these days is much more sedate, controlled, and it's more about using my head rather than my the testosterone of youth, should we say? You know, and I think certainly the, the you know the microsculpture exhibition and project is is also a way of being able to control my world a bit more. You know, it's just being able to remove the the client factor. And, you know, it's, it's a way of trying to bring clients to me rather than me going to the client and say, I, you know, I'm leaving, this is what I can do. It's more of taking back that power and saying, these are the pictures I'm producing. If you like them, come to me. If you don't, uh, thanks for you know, looking. Yeah, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned that earlier. How has the, uh, the microsculpture project, you know, impacted your, your, you know, your, your normal commercial job as people have discovered and seen this work? Yeah, well, yeah, it has. You know, since since it was launched a few, you know, two months ago or something, you know, we've had um, a couple of requests for sort of ad campaigns that is based around microscopic work. One for a food company looking at, you know, going into full detail of, of certain ingredients that's in their product. And so it's, it's nice to see there being a, you know, a commercial, uh, a positive, positive commercial uh, reaction from the work. It was never my intention when I started the project. Like I say, the whole thing about the project was that it was free of that of commercial restraints. But now it's coming around where it's actually producing, you know, commercial opportunities, which is great. You know, I've got no problem with that. And it's, you know, it's it's a way to if I can do that, if I can shoot this stuff commercially, it will be wonderful because I think through uh, anyone's career, you know, a creative's career, you need to have 
you have different sides or sort of different things happening in a career. You can't have a career that is just the same thing from start to finish. Um, You know, my career started in reportage, then it went into more commercial sportswear sort of world. And then I've shot cars and now, you know, I'm doing something else. And, you know, in five, 10 years time, hopefully I'll be doing something else as well. You've got to keep it moving. One of the things I was curious to hear about is uh, I think that you're exploring the world of VR with the microsculpture mm. project. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about that? Well, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, trying to, it's trying to exercise the brain, you know. It's, it's trying to explore things that I have had initially no understanding of. Um, virtual reality is something that will dominate my son and daughter's lives in the future. Mm. And I want to, I want to understand, understand it myself and, and, and push it further than it has gone already. So I'm in talks with a, a VR company in London at the moment, early stage thing, and, and the idea being that h- how can we make a VR experience of something that is six millimeters long? You know, and what the idea being is that you have a headset that you put on and you can fly around uh, a 16 meter insect and go all the way in. So it's cell and it, one single cell in its eye is as big as your screen. You know? oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, you know, we're looking at the 3D mapping of, of an insect and using my textures and colors from my images to go over the top of that to try and make it happen. It's a lot of work. You're probably looking at the moment about six months' work to produce one, one VR uh, experience. And, and a bit of cash but um <laughs> but you know it's it's talk, and it's, it's good to have these talks and it's good to explore new avenues it's good to you know just to be curious i think you know how how is the recent experience not only of creating the images but in terms of um sort of marketing promoting it helped you to discover a new facet of your of you as a photographer i think one of the benefits of this microsculpture project that's come out of it is you know, it's, it's certainly given given me more confidence to try new things and try things that might not not necessarily work. You know, um, when I started the project, you know, I had no idea if it would work or not. I had no idea of people's reactions to it or whether the images would be successful. And two years down the line, you know, so it, it took two years to shoot twenty four insects in total, um, so, and that's obviously quite a solitary process. It was nerve wracking when I put it out there to the public. But then after the first week, I think we had something like eight and a half million hits on the behind the scenes video. That gave me the confidence to think, well, yeah, yeah, you know, it was a bit of a punt. And it was a personal project that, you know, I maybe pursued a little bit too far. You know, maybe could I have been concentrating on commercial work a bit more? You know, could I have chipped away at my mortgage a little bit more if I'd have been (laughs) not photographing these insects? Um, But it's, it's shown me that, you know, if you have confidence in an idea and you have confidence in your work, and you should sort of give everything you've got to it because, you know, big things can come from it. That's awesome. Well, my, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Um, I'd probably predictably go back to Brent, to Brent Sturton. His, his work shaped my work from an early age. You know, even to the style of my photography, the way that he'd use light in, you know, strobe lights in, in places that I didn't really think you could take strobe lights. You can, you can take that style of photography to, you know, for example, I think he, at one point when he was based in Baghdad in the green zone during the problems, during the troubles, and he got handed over to the insurgents 
by the US military to do some documentary portraits and, with them. And he, and he took his lights with him. And for me, uh, you know, it's insane, but the pictures are, are beautiful, you know. And his work, he was in, he'd go to some, some, some terrible situations and meet people with real hardships. But he, you can tell from his photos that the way he approached his subjects and the photography was completely sympathetic with the subject. Mm. And he, his work humanizes the subject regardless of where they come from and what their problems are and stuff like that. And the, most importantly, his work, work ethic, you know, the fact that he stuck to his guns all the way through and he's got to a position where he's at now, which is, um, you know, at the top of his game in the world. And I admire that. And, I'm, you know, I feel quite privileged to have met him and, and learned from him when I was younger. That's great. Well, Leon, thank you so much for, for appearing on the show. It was really a, a pleasure and a fascinating opportunity to learn more about your work. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Levon Best for joining us here at The Candid Frame. To see his work from his micro-sculpture project, visit microsculpture.net. And to see his portrait and sports work, go to levonbiss.com. Please remember that you do make a big difference to our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Thanks to G.K. Vaughn for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making regular monthly contributions through Patreon. You can contribute amounts of $2, $5, $10 or more, or anything in between on a monthly basis and help make a big difference to the work that we do here at TCF. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. I'd like to thank the people who recently contributed to the effort, which include Neil Waybright, Susan Goodwin, and John Howgard. You are really helping us to reach our goals for this year. Thank you so much. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is... The Candid Frame.